Hello and welcome to another edition of Bear Books Podcast with me, April Berry. And me, Daisy Ray. And we have the absolute honour today of having a conversation with Ivan Luis Hernandez, who is the author of I Love Vulnerable. And I have to be honest and say, hand on heart, that I did not really want to read this one. <laughs> I apologise. But I looked at it and I thought, it's political. The cover did nothing for me. But they do say, don't judge a book by its cover and never true or word spoken. This book, it's simply written, but detailed. And it's an account of the life of Victor Gomez. We meet him as a child. His family is dirt poor constantly struggling to make ends meet. Victor struggles in school as his teacher treats him appallingly. His father is killed in an avoidable accident. His mother fades away without her love. Victor is adopted by a moneyed, well-respected family, which we won't go into details of, and that helps Victor to keep food on the table for his siblings that are left at home. The book is political, which is one of the reasons I didn't really want to read it, It's set from 1952 onwards. It's based in Cuba and Miami mainly, and it centres around the time of Castro. And we follow Victor's life as he grows up and becomes a US spy. And it's based on a true story. And despite not wanting to read it, it was April's choice for the podcast. I was captivated. And knowing I was reading about someone's actual life and not a work of fiction, kept me engaged to the very end and I have to say I am so glad I read it and thank you April Berry. So can I now put my metaphorical air-drawn number one one to me? (laughs) Yes you can. Yeah I mean obviously it is the kind of book that I like to read. Um, I too found the book absolutely enthralling couldn't put it down, fell in love a little bit with Victor as a small child, yeah. uh, and that sustained throughout the whole of the book. And really, I think the only thing now that we need to do is just go and find out what Ivan has got to say about the book and about his journey writing it. So I'd like to start by welcoming Ivan Luis Hernandez to the podcast, joining us today to talk about a fantastic debut novel. That's not really a novel, if I'm Yeah, it's a biography, but it reads like a story, doesn't it? Which makes it fascinating for me. It does. This book was my choice, and Daisy was a little bit dubious at first about, well, that's more your style of thing to read, so I'll, you know, I'll go along with it. She's done a complete about flip about this and sent me a message a couple of days ago saying, this is amazing. Yeah. So a convert, a total convert. Um, Interest for me because I've got a great interest in, in Cuba. So I think that that was one of the reasons why I actually picked the novel. What we want to know is, other than the constant nudges from your nearest and dearest, knowing how much work would have to go in to do this story justice. What was the final thing that prompted you to start to write the book? First, thank you both for having me. And I love hearing that story because I keep hearing about some readers who are reading it, thinking they're getting themselves into something. And then they finish reading it, realizing that they've read something different. And that was sort of deliberate. But so first of all, I I love hearing that story. And and I'm, yeah, I'm 
I'm feeling pretty geeked out on that whole uh, background <laughs> that you gave. But <laughs> to answer your question, April, the thing that really prompted me was very, very personal, actually. I was, this is sort of off topic, but I was born with a heart defect. And later on in life, I was surprised by the news that I had to have heart surgery. And the second sur surgery was successful, but it left me with PTSD and agoraphobia, which is fear of leaving the house. And uh, my whole life changed. I was a very active person. I was working all the time. I was at an executive level at a company in New York. And so I had to really shift everything and found myself at home a lot wondering, what do I do with myself besides drive myself crazy? And I started to resurrect the screenplay that I had made um, called Isla Vulnerable. And I began to just write creatively and connect the dots on pieces that were disjointed. And then I just found myself writing and writing and writing and writing. And by the time I knew it, I had a book, not a screenplay, because I enjoyed going into the detail and I enjoyed calling family members and learning more about their lives during that time. And I just wrote and that outcome ended up being a book. The other thing that really got me going was the current state of the U.S. Uh, and how and, and just history and how it's told and the resources and and the politics involved around what's happening right now and how some politicians are trying to uh, squash or remove certain parts of history to shape the narrative in a very biased way um, was bothersome to me. And I just found myself further motivated by that, by the temperature there, to make sure that the story around the Cuban revolution was told from a very humane standpoint and a very honest one. And um, my nieces and nephews are reading and now they knew nothing about the Cuban revolution or cared didn't really care for it, and they have a newfound respect for history in that light, um, especially through you know their grandfather being a spy. It's pretty cool. It's probably more than you asked for, April, but I hope that helps. Not more than I asked for, because like I say, it's an area of massive interest to me, being a paid-up member of Cuba Solidarity. And there's a few things politically that's that's happened with sort of Obama and then Trump and now Biden – um, where they were going to be relaxing, and then Trump squashed it again. And it's kind of shocked me that Biden hasn't gone back to Obama's standpoint, uh, but that's my my own sort of views. We're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about your book. But it, it's invoked a lot of conversation for me. Yeah. She has found it fascinating. She loved this from the off. This was never one that wasn't going to be on this season. That's so great. Yeah. I also understand that it took six years of love and research and patience to put this book together. Having read it, I can fully appreciate why you'd want to do this. So is this book like a legacy for your family? Or, you know, everyone says, oh, everybody's got one book in them. Is this your one book? Or now that you've done this, are you tempted to write more? I am definitely tempted to write more and i've actually started because of the, the the reflection that this book allowed me to do personally and and what it allowed me to overcome personally out of probably the, the worst moments of my life i i want to take that further and exercise my desire to write and actually make something that 
um, is more of a self-help guide for people who are facing or have faced trauma of any sort, be it heart surgery, PTSD, agoraphobia, all of the above, and make a mental toolbox, if you will, or a mental sort of keepsake book that hospital patients can have with them. Because there is a lot of different things I learned that a psychologist or psychiatrist can't really sit down and prescribe or discuss openly within the scope of their their role and, and different regulations. And so I, I'd like to take that liberty and that opportunity to just um, flex out everything I learned to that community and in a self-help guide. So that's what I'm currently working on for a slated release of next year. But I do want to go back to this genre and everything that the two of you mentioned at the top of the, the episode, which is putting another book out there. This one would be historical fiction around World War II, uh, three characters who speak all different languages and are trapped in Italy. Because I find that a lot of folks don't really know the part of World War II around Italy and how it was just taken over by the Nazis at one point, uh, briefly, if you will, and at least in terms of compared to the rest of history and how that unfolded. Yeah. Um, but I I have a really unique way that I want to tell that story with three people who speak different languages and each is attracted to the other or find themselves attracted to the other and they're sort of just trapped. The same way that you used your father's stories to write the book we're talking about today. So your new book, you have sources for those three characters already? Not as close, but yes. And they're good friends of mine who uh, are from Italy yeah. and know that history firsthand and have family members who experienced certain things. So uh, not as close connections, but yes, I have I have some sources that I would lean on to to build you know, real life inspired characters. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating way to write. Um, I am an avid fiction reader, which is why I usually steer away from biographies, autobiographies. Sometimes the true life stuff is more upsetting to me because it's real people's lives. It's not just some made up story that doesn't really mean anything other than the titillation and the escapism from the world for some time while you're reading it. But your stories, they're real people. These are real emotions, real day-to-day, -day, real angst, real hardships. People's lives are lost. And it's not something I experience very often. So for that, I have to say thank you very much for writing that the way you do. And if you are now looking at writing a second one in a similar vein, then I am really looking forward to that. I would definitely be reading that when it's ready. Again, that's another sort of area of interest for me um, is World War II. So I've got some dark interests sometimes, I have to say, that will be on my reading list uh, for sure. So any ideas when that might be hitting the, the bookshelves? Well, well, the two of you had just further motivated me to to, to keep on writing it. <laughs> Good. So it was slated for 2026 because I was going to focus uh, – the self-help guide for 2025 release, but I'm actually, I, I, I write, I can write both at the same time. And that's what I've been doing, depending on where my inspiration lies on certain days, I'll, I'll go to one or the other, um, or an idea will come up or a character idea will come up and, you know, just start writing the outline out so that 
you know, the story starts, starts to further take shape. So, you know, my writing process is usually first very messy. And, you know, I, I write really cool scenes. And then I try to fight to just, I, I try to find the way to just put them together. Obviously, Isla Vulnerable was very much revolved around the story of my dad's life and is 80% true to my dad's life and specific things that happened to him. Um, and so, so that sort of was easy because I had the real life guide, uh, but the scenes were pretty messy overall in terms of process. Hoping for 2025, April is, is, the, is the short answer. Wicked. So how did you get your father to agree for you to write this book, given that the, the majority of his life and aspects of his life were lived in the shadows? At what point would, did those details no longer need to be hidden? So when I approached him in my 20s, when things just started to add up finally and, and you know, you go to get into adulthood and you start to think for yourself and realize things on your own and you're like, wait, you know, adults aren't all perfect. <laughs> all these organizations that raised me aren't perfect. In fact, some of them are corrupt and weird, right? Like <laughs> you start to look at things as an individual. So after I approached him and I said, I just flat out asked him, were you in the CIA? And his reaction was one of a bit of shock. You know, he was sitting on the recliner, closed his book, looked at me and said, my son, it's a little bit more complicated than that. There's a little bit more to that in the preface for any of your listeners that are interested. But further down the line, when those six years really started to kick in or started kicking in and the book was already really underway, he really grew this attitude. You know, he's 80 right now and he, he grew this attitude where it was kind of funny. He said, you know, when you get to my age, you just have a license to do stuff and say th things and you get away with more than the average person. And at the same time, enough time has passed where he started to feel safer. Um, you know, there were changes in Cuba. Um, Fidel Castro sort of just disappeared, never officially was announced um, dead, but, you know, just sort of faded away. Raul took over, his brother. And you know, things started to change. April, to your earlier point, you know, Obama kind of loosened things up a bit. And so all of that just happened during those six years. And it just started to become more and more comfortable for us to release more and more. Uh, and so the ability to find some of these characters, like the person he reported to in this sort of rogue agency that the CIA was operating and funding, but never admitted to doing so, uh, his direct superior, we were able to use his real name, Viafania, because uh, he was in the papers, he was a public figure, and therefore, you know, we could use his his real name, at least in the references and the photo references in the back of the, of the book. So, um, a little bit of all of that sort of took time. But I will say that when I was about to release the book, we had about just about three hundred people RSVP to the Miami launch. We had it at a bookstore, and we had to move it into a theater because the RSVPs just kept growing. And I got a call from a good friend's father, who is a political analyst on, on different cable networks and was a provost at UM, was working with the Cuban Institute at University, University of Miami is what I meant by UM. He calls me and says, Ivan, whatever you do, don't talk about specific trained tactics. It's, it's good that the book is classified as historical fiction because there's some ambiguity there that gives us all sort of a safe net to work in uh, when it comes to CIA and them taking books and making you redact stuff or just pulling them off shelf. He said, but just don't push it. And that was like, you know, 12 hours before the event was scheduled to start. 
because there's a homestead base out here with CIA headquarters. And he said, it is, I'm almost positive that you'll have somebody from that base at your event quietly, but they are just listening. So, yeah. you know, no risk, but. <laughs> well, first of all, I am not surprised that your launch blew up the way it did. With a work such as this one, there's so much in it that people can relate to or see in their own pasts or have lived through themselves. Why wouldn't you be interested in reading what your perspective of that time that they've lived through also would be like? So genuinely, that would be huge. I would want to go to that, even if I hadn't read the book yet. I would still want to go to it with a view to reading it. But I did want to ask about your father. You said in your like acknowledgments of preface and your author notes, etc., that he had quite a lot of absent time. So it was a unique upbringing that you had with your parents. Do you feel like you know your parents better now that you have this fuller understanding of their lives? And has it changed your relationships? This question is a really special question, um, and I can't help but re respond to it emotionally because you know, we, and, and Daisy, you know this, you know, we write characters and as authors, right? We write characters, we develop them and we come, we become really creative with them. It's a completely different process when you have to put yourself in the place of your own parents when they were younger. It's, it's something we never do as humans. Naturally, we only know them at the age we've met them, right? You know, their age, obviously not ours. We're zero years old. In this. <laughs> um, and so uh, my mom passed suddenly to cancer a few years ago and so having to go back for instance and think about what was she like what would she say how would she respond to this situation and how would she respond to her father when he screams at her to do that was i mean talk about a cathartic experience but also just an emotional emotional one and the same thing for my father is trying to separate myself from the story that's why by the way side note um or fun fact uh, Victoria Patelin, my uh, co-writer on there, she helped me bring all the historical sort of facts in because I found myself so sometimes overwhelmed by the emotional input and output of trying to really mold these characters. And I, at times, I wanted to slap myself for choosing a historical fiction book that was also biography, that was also a suspense book that was also a sort of romantic suspense book in some some way you had a lot of hats on that's right and so i had to historically like fact check things because i wanted to get the historical pieces right and the chronology of everything right so that it was a real true biography and 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 the story felt real from all those elements from all those aspects but i found myself spending so much time having to build those characters and write dialogue and uh, in a very sort of cinematic way. And the historical fact-checking was was a lot to take on. So she helped me a lot in that respect. Going back to the the question, I understand them so much more. You know, I, I think as adults, we look back and we, in, in some way, we always sort of blame our parents for something, right? There's this, um, I wish they would have been there for me when X or Y, or I wish, you know, things were different in these ways. But I understand them so much better, um, especially the moments with my in building my father's character, Victor, where I had to go back to when he was a little boy. And, you know, you hear about they were poor and they were in this little 
farmhouse. But when I started to really get into the details to make people feel like they were there with the dirt as floor in the house and that when it would rain, the water would seep in and you've had mud in the house as flooring. And then you were sleeping on hammocks and there weren't enough hammocks because there were, in the book, I had to simplify it to, you know, four of them, but there were 11 of them in real life. That's a lot. I'm rambling a little bit because it's a little inexplicable, the whole process and the the newfound sort of respect I have for, for them just as human beings and having done the best that they could with, with the circumstances that they were that they were born into. Yeah, I can see the author in you battling with the personal aspects of it as well. That's very well said, actually, because that happened a lot. Hence, Victoria coming in to save the day with historical reference. <laughs> it must be hard to be candid about your own family at points as well, because, you know, we're none of us 100% angels, are we? That's right. And Daisy, and, and at the same time, I there was a whole thread of doubt around, I'm disclosing so much in this book where I start to question, you know, do I actually put this out? and Or is it just one big journal? Yeah. Obviously, it became a book. Personally, I think you made the right decision. Yeah, me too. Um, I found it absolutely enthralling and entertaining on on a lot of levels. I mean, in, in terms of some of the places that you've talked about in the story, have you visited Cuba? And is the place where your father grew up, is that still there? I have not uh, visited Cuba. The advice that I've been receiving is is that it, it wouldn't be a good idea and much less after release of the book because there's just too much unknown uh my, my father was a very conspicuous figure within their you know blacklist because he was a red-headed freckled cuban which aren't that common and so they knew him as red or rojo as his nickname in his unit commandos mambises psychological warfare cia funded unit and so that is a very conspicuous identity. I mean, now it's all gray, right? He's not the redheaded, you know, young boy. But uh, and I, but I do know that there was a moment where we were being dropped off at school when we were kids, and he was getting reminders that he was still being surveilled even years later, with unmarked envelopes being sent to his home of pictures of us being dropped off at school. And so we know that we're still there on some list. And I spoke with someone who is sort of an undercover expert in Cuban relations, government, however you want to put it. And his words to me were, you know, you can show up, rent a car, and then be stopped. And that rental car will be loaded with drugs in the trunk. So you'll be totally what framed or set up. And that was enough to deter me from going. So uh, in terms of places that are still there, uh, the farmhouse we don't think is there anymore just because of weather conditions and all the hurricanes that have passed since then. We would imagine that it's not. And that we know that the estate that was taken from his adoptive family, like they literally knocked on his door. I won't give up any, I don't want to give any spoilers out, but that home that was taken away from them during Fidel Castro's um, revolution is now a museum that's owned by the government. Okay, interesting, yeah. Yeah. So this is not a short book. There is a lot of detail in this book. 
for me reading it, I think most of the detailed stuff was the growing up years. That's where most of the detail was. There is less detail, I think, for the missions and that sort of thing. Is there a lot of artistic license in there because you've got your father's memories, but then you've also got to make the whole story flow? So you've got to go from one story to the next and it's all got to be cohesive because you're telling one very long story. So is there a lot of artistic license in there or as far as you could, is this as close to the truth as you could get it? That's such good feedback, Daisy. I, you know, being so close to it and having heard reviews and all from from close people within my network and now from a lot of people whom I've never read, readers whom I've never read online. um, One thing that I haven't been told is that the missions feel like they have less detail than the growing up the coming of age piece and that's really interesting i I don't take that by the way in a in any sort of bad way i i I love feedback because it helps me really reflect on on my process and what i do realize is that i invested a lot of time as an author in making sure people fell in love with the character of victor so they actually cared about what happened to him One of the references that I like to make about my inspiration for the book is the movie Titanic, the James Cameron version, where everyone thought, everyone knew what was going to happen at the end of the film, but they they just started to flock in droves the more people talked about it because everyone left there falling in love with Jack and Rose, with the characters, and seeing what was going to happen in each of their lives, right, And, and watching them kind of go through the story and process of the ship eventually sinking from a, you know, first class and a third class perspective and to this day we still see memes online about jack and rose right like it's so relevant still today and the movie became it's the highest grossing of its film of its time uh and by the way the studio almost pulled the plug on james cameron a couple times because he was so over budget yeah <laughs> i'm not surprised <laughs> no me neither so i was so committed to making sure people fell in love with the character of victor and their there, to your point, there is so much detail in the front end in that first part. Um, the missions, you you are right in that, you alluded to this a little bit, in that um, I only had so much I could work with. Uh, my father would, in hours and hours and hours of interviews, he would, he would become emotional. And, and a lot of times I remember him saying the specific words, you know, a lot of people died and I don't want to talk about that. And so... It was a very emotional process for him, and and many times I had to pause interviews mm. and uh, you know reset. And what I found myself doing is getting just enough information to where, and I have to be careful with what I say, um, where I could take the really exhilarating parts of these missions from a story and structural standpoint and use that, but not use many of these sort of exact facts that occurred. And so there's a combination of a lot of those different things that play into the missions specifically. And it's your father and you seeing your father upset, that's very personal, book aside. So that, that must be a difficult process in itself. It absolutely was. And you know what's interesting too? He said something that really simplified the idea of these missions. And, you know, you hear a lot about these spy movies and films where it's like, hey, the less you know, the better. And that couldn't be more true. He was excited when his mission was 
give this box, I'm just using a random example, give this box to this woman at two o'clock on this street. He was like, amazing. I'll do that. The more he knew, the more in-depth his missions were, the more nervous he became. But even if you look at the simple uh, example of like hand this book to this woman at two o'clock on the street, you don't know if what's in that box is going to kill you on the way to giving something to this woman at two o'clock. You don't know if that woman is actually going to kill you. Um, And you don't know if the person who sent you on that mission is putting you in circumstances where they want you to be at risk for some other reason, right? There's so much counter on counter and counter intelligence. And his unit was responsible for psychological warfare against Castro that, I mean, talk about mind boggling. I don't even use the term mind boggling anymore because, you know, there's nothing more boggling than being in those circumstances. I fell in love with Victor, if that's the words I want to use, when he was at school, when he was still at home with his mum and his dad. And I kind of fell in love with him then, and I actually just wanted to slap the teacher. Oh, yeah. You and me both. She was so swayed by money, wasn't she? So easily swayed. I just got goosebumps um, hearing you both respond that way because this character represents how a lot of people were in that time, not just in Cuba, around the social class discrimination that she represents that is that was very prevalent at that time where many adults just did everything, including treat certain kids in certain classes certain ways to associate themselves more with the upper class than with anybody who was a lower class. I think there was a lot of fear and ignorance in her behavior as well, though. And a lot of that does does stem from ignorance and also a little bit of survival instincts, too, where in a certain way I felt sorry for her because she was also a product of her environment. Yeah. From reading around the story and your notes in the book, you were able to gather details and information from several sources, not just your father. And it sounds like the most amazing six-year adventure or a fascinating mission of your own, if you like, however you look at it. Do you miss it now that the book's written? You know, Daisy, I haven't had a chance to miss it, thankfully, right? Knock on every piece of wood in this room uh, as an author, because thankfully, including with folks like you who call me and say, hey, you know, let's talk about your book. I'm able to still feel like I can be an active part of it and I'm still working on it. So there's still so much opportunity. And I also feel that this is a very cinematic book and I'm having some really interesting conversations with different folks in different industries, including the film industry. And so I hope that this book isn't going to go away anytime soon and that I, I may continue to be working in potentially repurposing it in certain ways. Um, Or I should say re-repurposing it in certain ways. (laughs) As this was initially a screenplay, what were the plans for that? Do you think there's a possibility that this may be made into a film at some point? Is that That your hope? That is my absolute hope. And I think that's a little bit of, of why, you know, in your earlier questions, I said that I don't want to let it go, that it's not done. Because going into this, I always looked at it through a cinematic lens and 
I wanted to touch as an author, you have to do this anyways, to really bring readers into the scenes and to feel the scenes, right. And touch on all the senses, the human senses. And so on top of that, I have a lot of dialogue in the book as well. I, I feel that it's still an homage to the screenplay that I had made, but never really released. And I'd love to go back to, to that and see it as a, a period piece. Yeah. Do you think that's why it's so long? Because initially you want to, because it was a screenplay. So you've got in there all those descriptions of everywhere that they are. Like, for instance, where they're running through the park and Victor's being chased from, well, I won't go into detail. But you can imagine the park and the scenes and the people and the buildings around the park. And you've also got all of that conversation because you would need all of that to make this into a movie. So do you think that's why it's so long? That's another question again, but for me, that's what makes it richer and made me believe in Victor. I am rooting for Victor from the off, I think is amazing. And it never really went away for him growing up um, for the next stages of his life without giving too much away. And even when it was over, it never really was over, was it? So. It impacted everything right from when he was a small boy all the way through his life, really, to the present day. And I, I think to that point, the better answer I can give you is that I, today, after writing the book in four parts, and each part is almost like a different genre, and Victor is a different person in every single one of them, I see it more as playing out cinematically as an episodic where there's four different seasons or more. Uh, two, two readers have asked me if there's, um, you know, if there's going to be a, a, a second part. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I would say the best answer I have is I, I think for me personally, if I had the decision or made the decision, um, it, it would play out as an episodic. Makes sense. I wouldn't want to see any directors or producers, though, making massive changes. And that's sometimes can is is and i hear it a lot myself and I, and I read a book and then i watch the film and it's like well that's absolutely nothing like the book and that's for this i wouldn't want to see the changes because i think that the richness and the levels of victor need to be shown because you're invested april yeah i am if a film opportunity an episodic opportunity comes along we'll have to call april because I'll, I'll need that army of people saying, no, <laughs> stay true to the story. <laughs> I, I think you've got to, because in one, of, one of the things is, is that there is a, there's a history there. So there's a documented history there of actual events that happen. So it's not something that somebody's dreamt up. And I don't think that, that producers should mess with history. Agreed. And the historical context of the book is extremely accurate. It is accurate, I should say. And the way things play out, every book event that I go to, everyone, someone will always ask me how much of it is real and how much of it is fiction. And I always say 80-20 is fair. Yeah, because the events in and around the late 50s and even the knock-on effect to present day, to the way that, you know, Cubans live their lives and the, the things that they can and can't get, it all stems back to those years in and around the late 50s and, right. and the early 60s. So 60 years later, you know, Cuban people are still living with the knock-on effect of those historical events. And you can't change 
history. You can't polish it and pretend certain things didn't happen. We learn nothing about life and moving forward and getting better as a planet That's right. if we do that. So it is important that the truth remains, even if this is made into a film. You can't have a shiny, happy ending to everything. It's just life doesn't, it's, it's just not that way. No, it's not. But I, I did notice that through the, the writings of the book, that whilst you were talking about the, the things that happened politically, there was no bias there. It was, this happened. I, I love hearing that because I can't tell you the number of times I reread it to make sure that I wasn't, especially with the, the way the temperature is right now, where every single thing is political in the world, but you know we, yeah. we feel it super duper hyped here in the US. So I'm speaking from that perspective, but... I wanted to make sure that this was a bit of one escape for, for someone and, and um, an educational piece at the same time for folks like, you know, teens that are reading it and learning about the Cuban revolution for the first time. Well, I for one thought it was brilliant. And I'm really, really glad that I stuck to my guns right at the very, very beginning of the planning of this season when I said, no, we're reading this. Yeah. I would not have chosen it. I am sorry to say, because now that I have read it, I absolutely love it. And I am just going to be a little less judgmental in future. Hey, don't judge a book by its cover, right? Or by its genre or by its, <laughs> or by its synopsis or by. <laughs> it's funny you should say that. <laughs> I was talking on a Facebook group this morning about your book, about not judging a book by its cover. <laughs> and that's exactly what we were saying. Because I ended up loving Victor and completely believing in him. And I felt like I knew him personally by the time I'd got to the end of the book. It would have been a real shame if I'd just looked at it and thought, not my cup of tea, don't want to read it. I'd have missed out. And how bad would that be? Shame on me. I'm so happy to hear all that. And, you know, people watch the Titanic not knowing what the heck they were going to watch. You know, was it some action adventure movie and you know the images of the eventually the movie poster was changed to have jack and rose at the forefront there and they led with it being a love story viewers of all kinds of all communities came out to watch the film people love people that's right they do moving on from talking to you today for the people that are listening and want to know more about you and want to follow your next works where can they see you online and follow your journey thank you for that and the best place would be my website ivan luis with a z at the end hernandez with a z at the end dot com and everything is there including the list of stores that carry the book and any upcoming events in different cities that's perfect thank you so much and thank you for joining us today it's been an absolute honor it's been a joy to have this conversation i've learned such a lot and i feel educated entertained and a little bit in love with victor thank you both this was magic i absolutely loved hearing the feedback from the two of you and being able to answer questions that i've actually never really stopped to think about so you actually gave me an opportunity to stop and reflect after all this launch madness and reappreciate some of the things that were intended. So I'm this this was just magic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for sharing a piece of your life and obviously a huge chunk of your father's life with us. Amen. This is one of the most intelligent, enlightening, 
fascinating conversations with an author that we've had. I thought it was amazing. The mechanics behind the writing of the book and the emotion yeah. that's gone into all of that. And six years of hard work, the product that he's come out with at the end of it, i.e. the book, is absolutely amazing. I was fascinated the whole of the way through it. That's dedication for you, though, isn't it? Six years of all those interviews, the people he's spoken to, the notes he's had to take or record, and then to take all of those separate stories and to bring them all together and make them all flow into 400-odd pages. I think that is some skill. I was really glad that he, he didn't give it a political bias from his point of view. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very personal story in a political time. Well, it was an upheaval for, for hundreds of thousands of people that, you know, that, that actually lived through through that. And it didn't just impact lives of Cuban people, it impacted lives of American people as well. And more, I think more so than, than anybody else, but a well-written, very high recommendation from me to read the book. I know, you have loved it. Absolutely. I wanted to read it right from the very beginning. And I was so glad that I persuaded Well, I didn't persuade you. I just told you you were reading it, didn't I? There was no persuasion in it. We are reading this book. Yeah. I am really pleased that you did. I can, I can honestly say that you made an absolutely spanking choice. It was great. Thank you very much. I love that conversation with, with Ivan. I could have carried on all day talking to him. And one of the things that I, I wanted to say was, you know, can we talk to your dad as well? He was very easy to talk to, wasn't he? He was, but I would have loved to have a conversation with his father. Yeah, mind you, he's an old man now, you know, let him rest. Yeah. <laughs> he's earned it. He's earned his retirement, he has, that's true. <laughs> Isn't it funny how we feel like we know Victor? Yes, but Victor is a life person. And even though we've never met him, his story was told so well and in so much detail that I really feel like if I met him, I could sit down and have an easy conversation with him because I know so much about his life. Yeah. For those of our listeners that have not read this book, you need to. It is amazing. It is pretty good. Ivan has been through a lot himself and is part of some organisations that help him cope. He's had issues with agoraphobia, with PTSD, and is part of some organisations that we will put in the show notes so that everyone can follow Ivan's journey, along with a link to Ivan's website so you can follow him generally to see what he's doing next. That's quite important as well, with it being real life and not just a work of fiction. Yes, I agree with you. And talk of, of things that are amazing... We've got some amazing authors that write flash fiction stories for us here on the podcast. And we've got a flash fiction episode coming up next. What's the, the prompt? Oh, it's a pocket full of stars. And let me tell you, we have had some cracking stories in for this. One in particular had me in floods. Oh, bless. Very emotional, whimsical, beautifully written Really enjoyed it. So, yeah, looking forward to bringing you that episode. Okay. Anyway, I'd, I'd just like to finish off this episode with another thanks to Ivan for giving up his time, for talking to us, uh, and for making this episode, for me, actually quite a special one. Yes. Thank you so much, Ivan. And thank you, April. 
You're welcome. And we'll see you in a week's time for a pocket full of stars. Take care, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. Now you've had a listen, why not pop over and join us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to send in your flash fiction submissions, you just need to email us at beerbookspod1 at gmail.com. And now that you're part of the Beer Books family, why not share us with all the bookworms and creatives in your life? Mm-hmm.